Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. Today, we're going to tell you the story of Richard Kuklinski. So pour yourselves a strong cup of joe and let's dive in. This episode is actually a listener suggestion from Kent B. So thank you, Kent. I'm going to go ahead and preface this episode as well. It's a little bit more violent than some of our other ones. So just let that be known to you guys. There, It's a little rougher. For those of you who have not heard this name, Richard Huklinski was a pretty high profile hitman. He had a lot of ties with the mafia and the mob and ran in the same crowd as some famous mobsters, such as the Gambino family. And it is rumored that he was the one who actually killed Jimmy Hoffa. Richard Kuklinski was born April 11th in 1935 in Jersey City, New Jersey. And for the sake of not having to repeat his last name too many times, I'm just going to refer to him as Richard from here on out. Richard was born into a pretty low-income family. His dad, Stanley, worked for the railroad and was a very abusive dad. Later on in life, one of Stanley's other sons, Florian, actually passed away from one of the beatings that their dad had given him. I mean, I know this was from many, many years ago, but did anything happen to the dad? Like, any repercussions? No, because he took off shortly after this happened. Okay, that's fair. Richard's mom, Anna, worked at a meatpacking factory, and from what Richard says, she was pretty abusive as well. He mentioned one time that she was beating him with a broomstick so much that it broke in half. Like I just said, the father abandoned the family, and that happened when Richard was a teenager. He ended up dropping out of school in eighth grade, and he described himself as a small scrawny kid who got bullied a lot. A lot of information about Richard and his life actually comes from Richard himself. He's done a lot of interviews, like hours of interviews, and there's quite a few documentaries where he recounts his memories and his life. Well, it sounds like he didn't have the best childhood, so it kind of is already giving him really the tools to fail in life, not succeed. Absolutely. It started off pretty awful. Richard recounts how everything started to change for him when he realized that if he started being the bully, he wouldn't get bullied. And what ended up happening was when Richard was 13, he beat a local bully named Charlie Lane who ran around with some other kids as well, but he beat him to death with some type of wooden weapon and says he cut off Charlie's fingers with a hatchet and pulled his teeth and then dumped him off the South Jersey Bridge to cover up the crime, and Charlie's body was never recovered. You said he was 13? That is insanely young to do that. When you said beat him, I didn't expect you to say beat him to actual, literal, physical death. Yes, he murdered his first person at 13. That's insane. 
He also then went after Charlie's friends with an iron rod from his closet, one that you hang clothes on, and beat up some of them. And this is when he said that he, quote, learned it was better to give pain than receive, end quote. He also was very abusive to other animals in the neighborhood, and that's as far into that as I'm going to go. Richard also had another brother named Joseph, who, when he was 25 years old, murdered a 12-year-old girl. And when an interviewer asked Richard about this, he just kind of shrugged and said, well, we come from the same father. So this violence clearly ran through the family. Richard went on to just kind of live on the streets from home to home. He was a petty crook in his 20s, and he started to become like a well-known pool shark is kind of a phrase they used to use for this but he would run around to different bars and he was known as like a hustler and he was known as someone you didn't want to mess with because he had a very bad temper and he was not afraid to attack people beat them up and from what he says he would stab people bludgeon men and just dispose of their bodies yeah from what you've said so far about Richard which you haven't even gotten into very much but he's definitely not somebody that I think I would want to mess with no not at all and he was a scrawny kid but he certainly grew up he was about six five and 300 pounds once he got into his mature stage in adulthood so he was a big dude yeah it's a pretty big dude but he probably enjoyed that because he was now able to like nobody was going to take advantage of him or beat him up right he clearly wanted to be in control and he was it's interesting throughout this story that he got away with a lot of stuff in 1960 Richard had already been married to a woman named Linda and had two kids with her in 1960 when Richard was 25 he met 19 year old Barbara Pedrin, while he was working on a New Jersey loading dock and instantly kind of fell for her. She was a recent high school graduate and worked as a secretary. So he then divorced his wife he was with at the time. And there's not a lot of information about her and their life during that time. That's why I kind of skipped over it. However, he goes on to marry Barbara and they have two daughters, Merrick and Christian and a son, Dwayne, together. So he has five kids now. Correct. From what I can tell, the first two weren't around. I think That's Linda kind of took off. Better that way. Because I was going to say, he doesn't really seem like a guy that would be a great fatherly figure. We'll get into that. I will say this, though. In his interviews, and it was funny because I led off this research with watching an interview with him. He talks about how he really loved his wife and kids and he tried to be a very good father to them and kept his kind of dark side separate. I'll let y'all stew with that and we'll come back. That reminds me of Israel Keys keeping like his dark side secret on quotes like, you know, just hiding the body in the shed feet away from the house. So this is what I'm imagining in my head just to give you guys Based on what you've said, I know you said stew on it, but that's where my head went. And I'm not super excited for the rest. So during this time in Richard's life, he was kind of having money problems. Like I said earlier, he only had an eighth grade education. He didn't really have a lot of skills. And he started working 
in pirating porn films to sell to outside sources. And this is how he gets into affiliations with some of the mob and specifically the Gambinos, like I mentioned earlier. Roy DeMeo, or DeMeo, I'm not sure which way it's pronounced, but he came across Richard and basically they wanted Richard to work as a hitman for them. And they kind of knew his reputation and they supposedly tested him to see if he would be a good enforcer for them. What happened was Roy just randomly picked a target, some random man on the street and said, kill him. And Richard walked up to him, shot him in the back of the head, and it didn't phase him. The people he worked with actually called Richard, quote, the devil himself, end quote. When asked about his crimes later on, Richard is so casual and nonchalant. He just says things like, I don't think about it either way. Um, I don't feel bad. He said he from how he talks, he doesn't even put any thought into it. Throughout his time that he was working as a hitman, he also was a contract killer. So people would pay him to take out people they didn't want. A lot of times that did involve people associated in the mob or gangs. He goes on later in the interviews to say he killed, in one documentary says over 100, but later on he says well over 200 to 250 people. Richard was very open about different methods he used to follow through with the hits that were put out on people. He used things from firearms, hand grenades, ice picks, crossbows, chainsaws, and one time a remote controlled toy car with a bomb attached to it. He also was known particularly for his use with cyanide, which is poisonous to people. And he talked about how he would use it. He'd put it on people's food or in their drink or even put it into like a spray, like an aerosol spray. And he would use that as well. So, Abby, I don't really like this guy. He's terrible. I think we should talk about something else. Makes me wonder why we're doing a podcast on crime. We do question this a lot, guys. It, it can be a lot at times. For any of you who have heard about Richard Kuklinski, he is also known by the nickname the Iceman. During Richard's tirade, I guess is how I'm going to say it, during his time he was doing all this stuff, he came across another serial killer. His name was Robert Prange or Prange, it's spelled differently depending on where you look at it. And according to Richard, they met at a motel in New Jersey while they're both going after the same person. So they're both contract killers going after the same person, I guess. This is according to Richard. And he said that Robert would drive around an ice cream truck that he had and use it as surveillance to find his victims and that he would often freeze bodies of his victims to kind of hide the time of death. So he would freeze them for a certain amount of time and then go dump their bodies somewhere. Lots of ways to try to hide evidence and to throw police and detectives off. Right. And another name they called this Robert gentleman was Mr. Softy. That was like the name of the ice cream truck. 
I don't know. I thought it was creepy. I'm creeped out in multiple ways. One, I don't think a softy would be murdering people, but whatever. Also, is it softy because like soft serve ice cream? Yes. Like that was the ice cream name on his truck. So I don't really like ice cream, but I'm never going to be able to look at it the same again. (laughs) Ice cream trucks already have like a bad connotation to them. And this guy just fed right into it. Something about Richard that he claims is that he, you know, would kill obviously a lot of people, but he would never hurt women and children. Apparently what happened with him and Mr. Softy is that he wanted Richard to kill his wife and son to kill Richard's wife and son or Mr. Softy's wife and son. Mr. Softy wanted Richard to kill his wife and son and Richard did not like that. And what happened is later on, this man's body was found in his ice cream truck and he had been shot and killed. Wonder who did that. One thing that I want to say, though, is it is and I kind of maybe I'll study some of the psychology behind that and do like an episode about it. I am planning on doing an ep- a mini about like serial killers, just like the psyche of it. But it's so weird to think about these people that are committing the crimes like that. Because a lot of them do have, like, they don't follow rules, but they have their own little rules that they follow. Like, I will not kill women. I will not kill children. And I just think it's so weird that, like, they seem so unstable and so just, like, murderous and evil. But then they also have these rules where they won't cross certain lines because in their head it's somehow worse. I'm not mad at him for not wanting to kill women and children. That's not where that's, I just, it's it's strange to me. It is weird to look at it like you don't have enough of a moral compass to not murder people, but you'll stop at a certain type of person. Not to say that, I mean, let's be honest, all murder's bad, but crimes against children do particularly hit harder for people just because there's such an innocence to it. But you hear that a lot with, or even in prison, they always hear about how people go in for hurting children are likely going to get murdered or... Their prison sentence is not going to be great, but I just think it's super strange that there's not really a line, but then they have this line like they're, I don't know. It's always kind of made me question life. The mystery has been solved here at Crime Over Coffee. Our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee, and you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. Because of the lifestyle and way that Richard was making money he was fairly wealthy he had his wife and kids living in a pretty nice upper middle class home in new jersey and he tried to portray it as this like perfect life with the perfect family and he wanted outsiders to see it that way like i said earlier he tried to say he kept it all separate he would never bring that home from how he talks he says He cared about his family very much, but he had a funny way of showing it because there have been interviews with Barbara and 
Richard's kids that say completely different. And I'm specifically going to talk about an interview with one of his daughters, Merrick, where she recalls some of the stuff she went through growing up in this home. One of the things, so, I mean, when you originally mentioned that, I know I, like, said the Israel Keys thing, but I I think that some parents think that their kids are a little more oblivious to things that are happening, and they may not see or, like, remember certain things or whatever, but I think kids pay attention to a lot more than a lot of adults think that they do, and so he may not have been, I I know you're going to go into it, but he may not have been purposefully trying to involve them. But because of his involvement, they were indirectly involved. If you know I hear about that a lot, this is not one of those cases. He directly involved them. Like, bad. Merrick does say that Richard never physically hit or harmed the children, but he beat up on Barbara quite a bit. There is an instance early on when Barbara first met Richard where she wanted to leave him. And he actually stabbed her in the back with a knife and said that if she ever tried to leave, he would kill her and her family. And this went on with the kids as well when they were around. It was, if you guys try to leave me or say anything or come forward, you will all die. And he made it very clear that if something happened to Barbara and she was murdered by him or died from injuries that the kids were going to go to. He also killed a couple of their pets and that's as far as gonna go with that as well and he would directly say you know who you're messing with I'm a hitman for the mob so he was very open and very threatening to the children and his family Merrick talks about a lot of the struggles she had growing up specifically with some things they hadn't kept just in case they had emergency bags packed under their beds they slept in hourly shifts And they even made sure they always had coins with them in case they had to run out of the house and go use a payphone to call for help. I mean, at least there was like a plan in place, you know? Yeah, they were ready and they wanted to do something, but they just feared so much, which I understand. They Oh, absolutely. He sounds pretty horrifying. They tried a couple times to kind of get help in a way, and it just never worked out. Um, There was a time where... Barbara is actually in the hospital for an attempted overdose. And basically the cops were there patting Richard on the back saying it'll be okay because they didn't know what was actually going on and they didn't really investigate it. So I'm trying to figure out the best way to word this, but I think part of it is just the fact that times have changed so much. So like we're looking back on it from 2020, but in this time period, it was kind of seen like, man's still in charge women didn't have quite as much pull or rights as men did and so I think it could have also just been it wasn't being taken as seriously as it could have been and it wasn't taken as something that needed to be addressed it was kind of like what happens in your home happens in your home and whatever the husband does is okay whereas we're looking at from 2020 where none of that's accepted well, and, you know, I'm not sure how many people even knew about anything going on. Like, it sounds like there were some suspect suspicions, but I just even if they like told a friend or like other people in power that they could try to reach out to, they may not have taken it seriously because of the viewpoints that they had back then. There were also some just like missed steps. I think there is one time Merrick says that she called like a local precinct or the cops, you know, and they wanted her to come in 
and talk to them, but they were too scared to do that. And there was another time that one of the sisters went to a payphone and called a psychiatric center because they wanted to get their father help. A lot of the times they talk about how he had grown up with a troubled life. And I think it was just, you know, this natural instinct to protect your family. But that never went anywhere either. There was even moments where they got to the point where they talked about poisoning Richard, but they were too scared to even try it or attempt it. I think that is a very valid fear to have. It sounds like this guy is probably somebody you don't want to cross. And so they've seen it firsthand. So I probably would also be equally as afraid. As Merrick got older and could drive, Richard would use her to deliver packages to strangers. There were times where he would call and say, come pick me up and say, don't look, don't look in the trunk, drive me to this location. So he definitely was implicating her in some of these. She doesn't know specifically, but obviously she's she's still a child and didn't have a whole lot of options here. So he didn't want to involve them. That's why it's so ridiculous. In the interviews, he says that he's like, I love my family and all this stuff. I tried to keep it separate, but he didn't. He didn't. I wonder if in his head he thinks he did. He, I will say, when he talks in the interviews, he when he talks about like the murders he's done, he doesn't even flinch. Like it's actually really eerie to watch. But when he talks about how he hurt his family, he cries and breaks down sometimes. So I think... In his head, he really did think that he loved and cared for his family. I don't think you really act like that if you truly love and care someone. But in his own mind, he really thinks he was separating it. I don't know. It is absolutely wild to watch him. He has this weird dissociative thing. And Richard does an interview with a forensic psychiatrist and FBI consultant named Dr. Park Dietz, who kind of tries to figure out what is Richard's deal and he comes up with that he thinks he was definitely bipolar and had an antisocial personality disorder. He doesn't think that Richard feels any remorse or guilt about the things he's done and that he is compulsive and violent and that all sounds spot on. Sounds pretty accurate. A comment from Richard in that sense He says, quote, what I liked most was the hunt, the challenge of what the thing was. The killing for me was secondary. I got no rise as such out of it for the most part. But the figuring it out, the challenge, the stalking and doing it right successfully, that excited me a lot, end quote, which matches up with all the different methods he ends up using as a hitman. I'm still not liking this guy. And I know that's not your goal is not to get me to like him, but I just want to keep reiterating the fact that I really, really don't like him. In the 1980s, Richard starts to kind of veer off and become the leader of his own mob faction, or he has a group of people that he's in charge of committing these kind of crimes that are associated with mobs. They dealt with narcotics, pornography, illegal arms dealing, money laundering, and contract killing. But in the 80s, he'd been doing it for a long time and he'd kind of been involved with enough people that he starts to lose control a little bit. So I'm asking this not because I personally need it, but because I just want to know how much does it cost? Like, what is a life worth, I guess? How much does it cost to pay somebody to take out somebody else? 
I'm sure it varies depending on the person doing it. But I, an interviewer asked this question to him and he said typically he would expect around $5,000, which is a lot lower than you would think. But he might have, he might, I get the impression that he had a lower price because he didn't care. He clearly felt no guilt or remorse doing this. So as I said, in the 1980s, he's starting to kind of put his hand in too many pots. And investigators and police officers and the FBI are starting to piece stuff together. So what happens is Richard starts killing off people that are known to be working with him. So associates that he fears can implicate him. I'm going to tell you guys about the five big ones that were utilized in convicting Richard. There's obviously a lot of murders that we don't know about, but there's some specifically that led law enforcement to him. What had happened is they started to use these murders and they put together, they call it, I don't know if they called it this or just I think it was History Channel that had this at the top of the information for it, but they say Operation Iceman. And they have these different task force that come together to get Richard and convict him and put him behind bars. An agent named Dominic Polifrone actually went undercover for 18 months working with Richard. And he kind of befriended Richard and pretended to be like another hitman and share information with Richard and vice versa. And he would be recording Richard and getting information. There are some interviews you can watch with Dominic where he talks about it and recalls it and how horrifying it was. Because he knew that because he was hearing Richard's confessions, basically, that he was going to be on the hit list. So you said that he like went like undercover. Mm -hmm. And I was just I was thinking how horrifying that would be. And then you start talking about how like he was terrified, like Anytime we do an episode where somebody goes undercover for any situation, it always like I always tense up a little bit because like that's just pretty terrifying. But in this situation specifically, knowing Richard and like he would come up with crazy ways to like to kill people. And one of them, like I said, was cyanide poisoning was one of his big ones. And he would just put it in people's food or he had like a spray that like would put it in a nasal spray thing. So Dominic talks about how he was actually fearing for his life. And he's, like I said, he knew he was on that hit list because he already knew a lot of information about him. And he thinks that Richard was opening up so much because he was planning to kill him. So, quick question, and maybe it's a spoiler. Does he survive, Dominic? Yes, nothing bad happens to Dominic. Okay, good. Just making sure. He he does an awesome job. Sounds like he was like a big part in like implicating Richard and like bringing him in. So I just wanted to make sure he was... Absolutely. What ended up leading to Richard's arrest is Richard thinking he's meeting up with Dominic to do some type of trade. And then he ends up getting arrested on December 17th, 1986. But I'm going to go back and tell you guys about the murders that led FBI and police officers to Richard Kuklinski. In the early 1980s, Richard was working with a couple guys and they were involved in some illegal stuff. And 
I know, believe it or not. One of the guys, Percy House, gets arrested. I'm not sure exactly what it was for, but Richard is also working with Daniel Deppner and Gary Smith, and they all worked with Percy House, who got arrested, and they knew that this was bad news for them because he could implicate them for lesser sentence. Warrants then get put out for Daniel Deppner and Gary Smith. And so Richard decides there's warrants out for these guys. It's it's basically time to take them out in his eyes. This is what he decides to do. So in 1982, Richard puts cyanide poisoning into Gary Smith's hamburger and It took him a while to pass away from the poisoning. So Richard actually ends up strangling him to death and they put him just under the bed in the motel room they were renting. And Deppner, Daniel Deppner was also involved in this murder as well. And this is a crazy, creepy, gonna make you guys check under your bed. It was four days before Gary Smith's body was found and other people had rented the room in those days. And they kind of noticed the weird smell, but they didn't look for anything because you don't expect there to be a dead body under your bed. So if you're staying at kind of a sketchier place, you and I do this. I do this. I what? (laughs) Hide bodies under beds? No. Like when we get to a hotel, I kind of check around everywhere just to make sure there's not anything strange in the neighborhood i cannot tell you i do not think i've ever once looked under my hotel bed well i was trying to i know i've looked under my hotel bed i know that for a fact i don't always i've stayed in a few sketchy hotels before where i have looked under my bed but i do like all the closets and like everything i I look through all of it don't always look under the bed but like behind the curtains and stuff of the windows i like to check that just make sure nobody's like standing there creepily i'm just I'm going to be honest, I don't. After reading this, maybe I will. (laughs) Something people don't realize, though, is hotels and motels have a lot of death that happens in them. A lot of people go to them to commit suicide. That's common. Um, It it seems to be the meetup for a lot of illegal activity. But there is a lot of death associated with hotels and motels. And I would assume like inns and resorts and stuff like that as well. And cruise ships. In May of 1983, a plastic bag is found in near a tree in New Jersey, and it turned out to be Daniel Deppner's body, the one who also was working with Richard and helped to murder Gary Smith. He had been poisoned with cyanide and strangled as well. So you could probably guess who had a hand in that. I have no idea. These two are the two main ones that prosecutors had enough to have a jury find Richard guilty. They had evidence and witnesses and people who knew that Gary and Daniel both were meeting with Richard and with him when they passed away. These next three, Richard pled guilty to to receive a lesser sentence. So first off is George Malibrand, who Richard shot and killed and hid in a metal drum, which ended up being found near a chemical plant in Jersey City. The next one, Louis Masgay, disappeared in July of 1981 and had been working with Richard and disappeared the day that he was supposed to meet Richard, which also happened with George as well. Louis's body was found two years later after he had been murdered. 
He'd actually been shot in the head and kept frozen for two years until Richard dropped the body. When Luce's body was found, though, there was evidence that it had been frozen. So they were able to tell that it was some type of countermeasure and that he hadn't passed away or been murdered recently. And this last one was in 1982, Paul Hoffman was a pharmacist who was meeting with Richard to buy some drugs to resell through his pharmacy and Richard actually took his money and then attempted to shoot Paul and he didn't die because the gun jammed he then beat him to death with a tire iron and placed his body in a metal drum and filled it with cement where he left it outside of a motel and eventually the drum was gone because Richard talked about how he would go back and see it outside the motel And one day it was just gone. But when he confessed this to investigators and law enforcement, they weren't unable to find the metal drum. And Paul's body was never found. So we're still doing metal drums, is what I've gathered. Also, I'm really curious who took the metal drum. I'm guessing the city kind of like disposed of it if it was just on a street corner. There's no way that people in New York area and Jersey open up and look through all the trash, you know, before they pick it up. It would maybe be a good practice to look into metal drums, Gonna considering say, we hear a lot about. I bodies. now know where all of the missing people that we've covered in our cases have gone. Richard received life sentences for each of these five murders, so he had five consecutive life sentences. He also had some other charges that had to do with the different illegal trades he was involved in. Basic, his confessions led to him not getting the death penalty. So, as you can imagine, five life sentences means Richard was going to be in prison for the rest of his life. But Richard was a talker. And as I said, he did a lot of interviews where he claimed to be involved in over 200 murders. Some high profile ones like Jimmy Hoffa. I don't know if that's true. A lot of people don't believe it. They think he's just trying to get some type of credit for it. But later on, as I said earlier... Richard was arrested in 86, and in 87 is when he got his sentencing. But in 2003, during an HBO interview, Richard confessed to murdering an NYPD detective, Peter Colabro. So I'm going to start and say that Richard did get formally charged with this and received another 30 years to his sentence. However, some believe that he was not actually involved in the murder. So it was talked about that Peter, the detective, was involved with the mob and was kind of a corrupt cop. And a couple years prior to his death, his wife drowned in under some mysterious circumstances. And it's believed that her family, who also possibly had ties with the mob ordered a hit out on Peter Calabro and they supposedly went to a well-known mob boss in the area named Sammy Gravano also known as the bull and what Richard says is that all this is true and then Sammy paid Richard to carry out the hit a lot of people don't believe Richard actually was the one who carried it out and that Sammy did but this is just how it went in court and he got charged for it formally I I don't even know what to say. (laughs) Like, he seems like a terrible guy. And, I mean, obviously, I would love for the case of the detective to 
like be solved i know that it's technically solved but like to actually be the truth and for whoever did it to get the sentencing and to like have to serve their time but he was already in there for five life sentences at that point so adding one more i mean richard thought kind of highly of himself I don't know if that's the best way to say it, but he was definitely narcissistic. You can tell in his interviews, he really tries to portray this like tough, mean guy. There's a point where he's like crying about hurting his family and he talks about how he probably looks like a baby, like this big like mob hitman breaking down. And it's just, it's a weird thing to say, right? But you can tell that he wants to talk and likes to talk about himself and kind of his whole life, he was always trying to be dominant and a, in control of everyone. And it seems like in his interviews, he's doing the same thing. Seems like he was a very cocky guy. I think a lot of it, too, came with the fact that he just, like, he didn't seem to have any guilt or remorse for what he was doing. He, I don't know if he really had fear of getting caught so much as he just, he wanted to continue on with what he was doing. He did kill the associates who he thought would implicate him. But he just doesn't seem like he cares. And according to him, he was active from how he was how 13 when he killed the girl, mm-hmm. allegedly. So what year would that have been? So in like four, 1948. So from he was basically active from 1948 to 1986. So for like 40 years, this guy was just out murdering people before he got caught. That's just insane. It is insane, especially if his numbers he's thrown out 200 to 250 people is real. Richard Kuklinski died on March 5th, 2006 at the age of 70. Originally, they thought it was suspicious because he was about to testify against someone he had worked with prior. However, they did determine that he died due to natural causes. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.